morning, Matt. Good morning, Chris. How are you? I'm, I'm all right. Today we're here, but we're not covering a guru. We haven't got another more intelligent person to tell us what's what. It's just me and you. Mano, mm. uh, mano, a mano, o mano? Yeah. Mano, a mano. Yeah. Mano, a mano. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to inform you, like, Chris, what is it? What, what do you got to tell me? That we get periodic requests from people to like talk a bit more about our research or academic stuff, right? I think people need to be careful what they wish for <laughs> because the, like asking academics to talk about research is just an invitation to hell. <laughs> so, but we did think that for the patrons, we could do little condensed episodes where we talk about our research, research topics that we're interested in or research papers and, and maybe things like how to assess research papers and the, the quality within and those kind of things. But that would come out naturally in conversations, but basically to talk a bit more about our research interests and backgrounds and that kind of thing. And we're going to hmm. pilot test it today with a topic that you can describe do we do we have a yeah. nice name for this though we don't but like you're good at generating names guru bites that's terrible <laughs> that, is, that is bad <laughs> that's bad um let's ask the garometers uh, no. we're not garometers no that's terrible as well anyway we need to workshop it we need to workshop people can it, tell us some suggestions right that's it. Throw the ball back in their court. Uh, yeah, because people have quite rightly said that our show mainly focuses on us kind of criticizing other people for their opinions and galaxy brain stuff. And we don't really put ourselves out there. So I think if know. people say that, Matt, they haven't been paying that much attention because suddenly if you listen on occasion, we do offer our opinions on yeah, things that, that, that we value. True. They're just hidden. It's very hard to decipher what they are, but they're, you know, they're there floating under the surface like a big iceberg waiting to hit you. Like most of the criticisms of our podcast, totally unfair. And yeah, when you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> when you think about it. And, you know, the truth is that I haven't asked you much about your research and vice versa. So it is kind of good to, you know, I've got, got an expert here. I've got a guy who knows a thing or two. Yeah, I am an expert. I am. That's right. I, 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 according to a little known place called. No, no, forget that. Forget where I got my PhD. It's yeah, it's an institution. That's funny because you, you were just showing me your, your doctorate your, the, with the emblem and everything just a moment ago. You were very well, proud. Yeah, yeah, Matt. That's just I was just setting the scene just to prove. I know that you need verification of qualifications before you'll even let our guests speak. They have to show copies of their certificates and, and, and then you will deign to enter the room and talk to them. But, um, so I, I just follow in protocol. <laughs> they need to be signed by justice of the peace and all of that. Yeah, yeah that's true. No, I've cited it and I can confirm that it's real. Uh, in preparation for the conversation, I would reread a small section of my thesis when I was actually like being intelligent <laughs> many years ago. And, yeah. I, and I, I, I still don't hit my thesis. That's a, that's an achievement. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. That's good. I'd be too afraid to look at mine. But um, yeah, yeah, so your thesis was on religion and ritual and that kind of thing. But give us 
in, in, a, in a nutshell, not a big nutshell, just, just a modestly sized nutshell, Chris, what was your thesis about? The title of my thesis, which I've just remembered today, was Individual Pains and Social Gains, The Personal and Social Consequences of Collective Dysphoric Rituals. Mm. And so that's it in a nutshell. It's a very good title, Matt. It took me time and it condenses it, uh, what it's about. Mm. But it only makes sense, I suppose, if you know what collective dysphoric rituals are. And those might be slightly psychology jargony terms, not collective. Everyone knows collective. <laughs> so dysphoric is stuff that is unpleasant, right? Um, doesn't Correct. feel good. You're and a psychologist. <laughs> yes, that's right. So that makes me think of things like, I'm just spitballing here, is it like at a Masonic temple, for instance, you know, where they, they have these weird ceremonies that are, I don't know, they get their bottom spanked or something. I, I don't know. I've, I've Indeed, that's it. bottom spanking was the primary focus of this uh, <laughs> dissertation. No, but actually, yeah, not that far off base. I did three kind of empirical studies as part of the thesis. There were originally six. I was just being optimistic that I was going to fit those in. But in any case, I did one which is on a survey of Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioners. Uh, they have this kind of thing which they do at greeting ceremonies, some groups where they whip each other on the back with their belts and the people are often not wearing their their gi top, uh, so they they get like very badly bruised and welts on the back, and it's kind of like you know part of the promotion ceremony. Um, so I was interested in whether that had psychological effects on how you see the group and uh, how connected you feel with the other people, because some groups do it and some groups don't. That was the interesting mm. thing. Then mm. uh, the second study or set of studies was getting people to do artificial rituals, small, small rituals that we had invented in laboratories in Oxford and in Hokkaido in Japan, we would get mm. like groups of three people and tell them a cover story that psychologists and anthropologists in Oxford were working together and that they had found these kind of instructions for old rituals. And one of the ways that people explore what rituals do, this isn't necessarily true, but we, we told them that anthropologists get people to perform the ritual instructions. And then we try to see what people think that the rituals might've been about and, you know, academics look at what was involved. Um, so this was the reason that we told people to come in and do a, follow this set of ritual instructions together and perform a ritual. But actually what we were doing was that we were modifying the environment across a couple of conditions. So the manipulation was basically whether it was unpleasant neutral or unpleasant and this was manipulated by whether the background sound playing during it was screaming infant kind of babbling generic infant or like happy laughing infant but laughing in a non-creepy way that was an important thing to, to, to calibrate and and then also uh, the room was either dark or well lit and the the little idol that they were doing the ritual with had an angry expression or a happy expression and so on so you were varying whether or not it was dysphoric or not, right? That's, to a certain extent, right? Like we, mm. we couldn't make it. So just like environmental cues that were a bit more unsettling. It was yeah. very unpleasant to listen to a baby scream for like, it took 15 minutes, yeah. five minutes but, for each person to do it. So, But the but, ethics board wouldn't, wouldn't let you spank people, right? The, uh, not in that study. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so that was, that was the like experimental one. And then also in Japan, 
went out to a bunch of fire walking and some cold water festivals, but they're not actually in this thesis. Uh, so in the fire walking festivals, we took people, we, gi- we gave surveys to people before and after a fire walking festival. And, and then we looked at, you know, how they felt about the community and the fire workers and so on. And also if they were more generous in a disguised donation game and this kind of thing, both the people who took part in the fire walking and the people who were in the crowd watching. Mm. So those were the three studies that we're in. And that gives a, a general idea that, you know, the kind of area that I was interested in as my PhD. Yeah. I understand why you describe yourself more on that, like a psychological anthropologist, because that's, that's all quite similar to stuff that a social psychologist would, would do. Yes. So maybe yeah. the, like the thing I think that would probably distinguish it is that we like field experiments are more common, right? Going out to festivals and that kind of thing. And also if you saw the lab experiment, you might be very upset because of <laughs> the, the the ecological validity would just terrify you <laughs> because, you know, psychologists always want to strip things down and make like no potential influence from confounded variables. But in so doing, they make the situation incredibly artificial. And we more emphasized on like making a thing which looks like yeah. a real ritual. Yeah. 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 So what was the takeaway from, so skip out all the intervening steps. And skip yes. right to the sort of conclusion sort of section. What what was your main takeaway from from doing that stuff? Uh, it's kind of messy, but I, like the basic idea was that, um, and this isn't, <laughs> I don't think this is a, a grand insight, but that like painful or unpleasant experiences post-event that are subjectively interpreted as positive Right. So it doesn't matter, you know, how much you suffered at the time or that kind of thing. It's the subjective reassessment of the experience that leads to the heightened group bonds that you feel towards other people. And that this mm. can be associated with greater in group generosity and so on behaviorally. Um, but it doesn't always lead to that. And it is obviously stronger for the people that are participating in things and the people that are observing with them. So the other thing was looking at the existing relationships that people have and how committed they are. And these are significantly confounding. So it it stands to reason, but you can't, I think in most cases, it would be hard to generate a deep commitment to a group purely from getting them to do a ritual event. Like it has to have the invested meaning in it. it. yeah, yeah. Like these things in the real world, they happen within the context of a, a community generally of people that have been living together and working together for their entire lives. So, I mean, stepping back a little bit, one thing that occurs to me is that one of the underlying assumptions from people like yourself and psychologists like me is that a lot of the things that people do in groups are functional. They serve some kind of purpose. It's not just mm-hmm. like a, it's not just random stuff that happens but of course the sort of null hypothesis is is that like some things are a bit random and just kind of arbitrary but i guess the underlying presumption of that theme of research is that the rituals that are occurring dysphoric or not are there to serve a kind of whether it's social bonding or something like that some kind of purpose this might come dangerously close to the 
Brett Weinstein and Heller Haynes, uh, <laughs> like what Omega principle or whatever the case it may be. But, uh, I think there's a much more legitimate version of what they posit and it applies in the case of dysphoric rituals, which these are preserved, culturally recurrent. This is an important thing that there's essentially no society in which you don't find rituals and that you don't find dysphoric rituals. And because they involve cost, be it like physical pain, discomfort, or donating resources or whatever the case may be, there is a question of why, like, why are people doing this and why is it being preserved if it serves no purpose? And it can be, there are bound to be occasions when it's preserved as a byproduct of something else, which has a functional purpose. But I think there is enough evidence to show that dysphoric rituals, especially collectively performed, do seem to have functions in terms of bonding people together. And you find them often in groups which are highly committed or engaged in like risky tasks, including like terrorist cells or military groups or, yeah. or cults, right? These groups which need to get high yeah. commitment. And there's a yeah. theory by Joe Henrik, which focuses around rituals as creds, credibility enhancing displays. And that the argument is that, you know, taking part in rituals demonstrates a behavior to indicate that you hold a certain belief or you hold respect for a certain group. And if the mm. behavior is unpleasant, difficult, and so on, this is a more convincing behavior than just like staying, yeah, yeah, I yeah. believe in whatever. Yeah. It makes me think of like costly signaling. Um, yeah. I have yeah. a section I mean, on it. <laughs> <laughs> the of course not. It's there. So the idea with that is that, you know, you can't just rock up to the Masonic temple and say, hey, I'd like to be a member. And they say, okay, here you go. Here's your badge. And they go, great. And then you stroll off. You need to demonstrate your commitment by some sort of costly signal. And, you know, this is where I could see where the dysphoria could kind of fit in, right? Because it's something that's not easy. It's not necessarily pleasant. It's something that, that, that indicates that you care enough about this group to want to suffer a little bit in order to be a part of it. And there's a researcher called Aldo Simino who has taken this perspective and applied it to an evolutionary framework. And he's argued that initiation rituals specifically are a means of weeding out free riders on groups, mm. right? Because being a member of a group can give you elevated status, elevated access to resource, and that if you have people that ultimately don't contribute to the group, but just take that this is a problem and would have been a problem evolutionarily for human groups. So being sensitive and developing cultural tools that allow us to discover uncooperative members is, is important. So his framework's interesting. I've, mm. I, I've actually talked with him and we have some areas of disagreement or that we are unsure what the empirical evidence show because he's primarily focused on initiation rituals. And a lot of the rituals that I'm talking about are not initiation rituals. They're rituals for people who are already members of the group. And so it's a slightly different dynamic. But yeah, but we actually mm. plan to do studies together to look at some of that if mm. we ever get time. <laughs> yes. Well, just a little side note. I'm going to put a bit in this because, but I'm just going to mention it just because well, I think it's interesting is that Back when I was doing my PhD, just, just I, I happened to read this paper where they they played around with the iterated prisoner's dilemma, 
And for people who aren't familiar, the prisoner's dilemma is the sort of thing where you can cooperate, you can defect. And depending on what the two actors do, there'll be these differential payoffs. It's this classic little toy model for exploring these sorts of evolutionary cooperative or cheating defective type behaviors, which, which you just referred to. So the iterative prisoner's dilemma is one where you, you play that game not just once, but you do it multiple times and it gets much more interesting then. One of these days, Chris, I'll, I'll tell you about how uh, I programmed up the iterated prison dilemma with some very simple little computer DNA strands that govern mm. their behavior based on what the other player had done. And then they all, there was a population of them, they all played each other. And so you had this population of little agents um, playing the game against each other and getting differentially selected into the next generation based on their scores, basically, their, their keyword scores. So that was really fun. And it was fun mm. to watch how the population evolved. So one of these days we could talk about that. But yeah. to steer us back onto, sorry. Well, we had one, to- there was just like one offshoot mm-hmm. of that is that I didn't directly do this, but I was involved on the paper where it's published. There was some agent-based modeling. I think it's agent-based mm-hmm. modeling, which attempted to look at ritual dynamics and like uh, modeling costly rituals as rituals which minus fitness or like whatever the points based system were but can potentially lead to uh i can't remember how they modeled it in but in the paper it indicated that this was a counterintuitive way of making communities of agents more successful in the long run than ones that didn't do yeah so it's not even like the, the thing with modeling studies is always there's a lot that goes into the parameters that you yeah. build in your model. So if you're good yeah. at modeling, you can yeah. almost produce Always evidence. get the answer you want. <laughs> yeah. No, I know, so, I know. But, but it was interesting. Yeah. So you can like do modeling with rituals as well, right? You can modeling with anything. You can. We're getting into a whole different topic now, but I've always been interested in that and I completely agree with you that you, you have to, for a modeling study to be good, it always has to be so simple that you do not have the flexibility to tune parameters, you know, and, um, but then when it's so simple, it's so abstract, yeah. it can be que- questionable as to whether it's, it's, it's real, but. Ecological I, I, validity. That's the yeah, important yeah. academic yeah. term here, Matt. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I like the iterated prisoners for the, regardless of thing. I think it's a good model. It captures a lot captures a lot yeah. about like interactions that things can be beneficial to you in the short term, but they will harm cooperation and, and mm. rewards for everyone in the long term. That's a, that's a common situation. Yeah. And the iterated version, meaning that it depends on the way it's implemented, but that you can track reputations or uh, potentially have a third party punishment element and stuff. Mm. Right. And these, these do reveal interesting dynamics about yeah. human psychology. So. Yeah, I think there's lots of like a lot of interesting places you go there that actually aren't connected to religion. And we're going to get back to religion in a second. But you just made me think of how, like at at our university, like a lot of organizations, I've noticed a tendency where they want new applicants, you know, or or new members to sort of do their time. Like they'll sort Mm. of be denied promotion or whatever, and they'll be given the worst jobs and so on. And it's kind of like this thing where everyone's got to do that for a year or two or more. And I think a lot of it's got to do with showing commitment. And yeah. once, one, once you've done that, then. Like you could even, you could view writing a PhD thesis in some extent as a hazing 
ritual, right? Yeah. Because like yeah. often because sure, if people write it over five years and they spread it all out, that's good. You know that then it mm. isn't. But like the reality is many people condense the writing into a very short period of time and they suffer yeah. tremendously for that. But then many people have had similar experiences. And, you know, if you talk to them, you'll feel, yeah, you know, I went through something similar and it you feel more connected. So yeah, mm. I, it extends the definition a bit, but, but I think there are these, like, I think there is something fundamental about having experienced something difficult and, and potentially personally traumatic that you regard as like core to your biography. This is one of the, like mm. a relevant thing can make you feel very attached to other people that have a similar thing, which is core to them. And, you know, this is why I have a lot of sympathy for people talking about the IDW and going through a, what they regard as like a public trauma, right. As being part of the initiation into their group. It's, it makes perfect sense to me uh, in terms of like ritualized dynamics and psychology that they, they would feel that and that that would work, right? Mm. If you, and it, it works as a costly signal as well, like from their perspective, because you, you know, in their world, mm. being heterodox is a very costly, dangerous, brief thing to do. So when you think about it, like entering into any kind of relationship or, you know, and a, entering a group is, is like entering into a relationship. If it's a, like a deep and committed one, what you're being expected to do is to kind of recreate yourself in a way in order to be this sort of functioning group member. So I could see that what you described as, you know, like a personally, whatever existentially significant thing is, could be important as a signifier that you've actually honestly undertaken to make that kind of, it's almost like a sacrifice, a little bit of a sacrifice of self. And, and like with hazing rituals and so on, it's like a sacrifice of dignity um, to join the group. So yeah. You can see, I mean, like I, I'll, I'll get off the hazing ritual thing, but like even the Nixium cult, right? Recently, they, part of the thing that people really disliked about them were that they, they had this concept. I think it was, I can't remember how they termed it, but it was like, you had to give collateral to the group, which was like secrets, right? Or, you know, or nude photos or, or something, or, you know, branding is the most obvious, like physical demonstration of commitment, but even telling people, you know, things that could damage your reputation, like you've had an affair or something like, like that, this, these are all ways of demonstrating your commitment to the group, but then they function as a way that you can be controlled, right? And Scientology has done it as well. But the point in mentioning all this is just that like, those are very cultish examples mm -hmm. of it, but that kind of dynamic happens in a lot of tightly Normal. bonded groups. Yeah. And, yeah. and like even just getting closer to people is often part of revealing information, right? That you don't reveal publicly. So the notion, like this is self-serving for me, but like understanding ritual and religious psychology, it feels like it's an evergreen topic because it remains relevant regardless of how important actual religions are in a society. The psychology is still uh, there and there's no society where rituals aren't like a big part of daily life. They're just yeah. not what people imagine ritual to no. be. Yeah, that's right. Like sports and so on. So yeah, it reminds me of the cultish discussion we had recently. It's just degrees, but it's, it's everywhere. So 
getting back to the broader thing. So let's talk about religion and mm-hmm. stuff general, right? So, so let me be Joe Rogan. <laughs> it's not going to be Joe Rogan. Like, what's it all about? Like, yeah. If you're you know, Joe Rogan, you just need to spin it to relate to COVID. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So religions like rituals are omnipresent. Yeah. Pretty they're, much. They're like a, a fixture historically and cross-cultural. So why? Oh, there's one, one, yeah, why? That's a good question. Why? But there's also one pin to put in it, which is that some people and uh, some scholars of religion, no less, argue that that is not true. Religions are not cross-culturally consistent and they're not omnipresent, but rather they are product of modernity, in particular Western um, or at least Abrahamic-focused concept that does not apply throughout history. So they, they're saying that the word religion conjures up images of institutions and priestly classes okay. and doctrines. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. That's not what I meant by religion. Yeah, no. no so much, yeah, that's so, why yeah, they're that's wrong. Right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's a much broader definition which involves like dealing with supernatural agents and uh, hmm. powers in, and, and performing rituals, but, which is the view that I take of it. So I won't deny that the English word religion and that the concepts that most people associate with religion are based around an Abrahamic frame, but mm-hmm. but there's much this interacting with invisible spirit entities and concerns with ritualized practices is ancient, cross culturally recurrent, and doesn't require all of those things. You don't need institutions yeah. or princely classes to have it. So in that case, mm-hmm. I think, uh, and a lot of anthropologists have argued that it is a uh, like human universal, cultural universal, yeah. rituals and religion. Um, so why, yeah. why yeah. is why? a good, why? Yeah. So there's lots of explanations, right? There's tons. There's, there's like terror management theory explanations, which I think are maybe largely debunked, but, but it's yeah. still, but still quite popular. The notion that like to deal with existential dread, sure. we mm. develop afterlife scenarios and so on. And then there's also functionalist takes about like the roles that institutions play in kind of gluing societies and communities together, right? Creating totems for groups to belong to. And it relates to the stuff that we've been talking about with costly signaling theories and, mm. and so on and kind of evolutionary perspectives on why religion exists, which it probably is what are worth talking about. But I would also say that I think at a very base level, there's good arguments that the way that human minds and human cognition functions makes us likely to believe in invisible agents and to see patterns of causality where there are none and to regard ritualized performances as important ways to transmit culture and information and so on. So there are all these little parts of our cognition which would incline mm-hmm. us towards believing in invisible entities and supernatural causality. And these then, I think, bleed into the more evolutionarily, not group selection, but like cultural evolution explanations about how religion and religious institutions in particular. There's a researcher called Dominic Johnson, and he argues that 
if you want to create communities that can function in very large groups, right? This, this is like a thing with prisoner's dilemma. How do you maintain trust and cooperation within non-kin, right? Which we see a lot in human non-cooperation mm. with non-related mm-hmm. people. And the answer is usually cultural institutions and early cultural institutions that can fulfill the role of punishing people for non-cooperation, for immoral behavior, and say that you, even if you escape sanction in this life, you will receive ultimate sanction, our supernatural mm. punishment systems. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? The idea of the punishment systems. Because like these days, modern people, we're, we're used to the idea of these codified abstract legal systems of laws and precedents. And, you know, that's a pretty you know, ab- both abstract and a pretty new innovation. Like before there was often that problem of, of legitimacy, you know, kings or, or leaders or whatever. And the, the supernatural and the religions provides a direct, like a, like yeah. a, it's well, almost the like two, the direct route to legitimacy, doesn't it? The two weren't separate, right? Like the mandate of heaven in China was, is like a supernatural concept, right? That the rulers who were supposed to be like that the cosmic order had determined where the people that should lead would be the ones who led. So if you, yeah. and if they didn't have the mandate of heaven, they could be removed by revolutions and so on. And, and vice versa with like the divine right of kings. Of right? kings. Yeah. So the, in Europe, so you, you have the intertwining of like supernatural legitimacy and more secular but they weren't secular then, but, you know, concepts of laws mm. and, and social contracts and that kind of thing. Yeah, so and just, just social organization, like, yeah, like, re, like hierarchical, like a rationale for this is why you're working in the field covered with shit and I'm riding around on a horse, right? It's not just, it's not just luck, you know, yeah. you're meant to be there. I'm meant and to I, be here. Yeah. I, I think, I don't know the details of them like, uh, that well, but the Hammurabi codes, these kind of ancient inscriptions that will set out a series of codes and laws, I would be surprised if they were, you know, entirely secular in nature and, you know, but completely divorced from any concepts of uh, like divine authorities and invested in Hammurabi or that kind of thing. So, And and you do see like in, in stuff like the Old Testament, those sorts of scriptures, like the it's full of rules and exhortations of what you should do and what you shouldn't do and who you need to respect and so on. And a lot of it's kind of crazy or contradictory, but if there is a theme, then one of the themes is cooperate, play your role in a cohesive society. That's kind of the theme you get if to be, to be a good um, religious person. But I, I like what you laid out there because you, you sort of laid out those three broad sort of theoretical explanation. So you've got that social bonding and cooperation stuff that we just talked about. And, and before that, you talked about the cognitive aspects, which mm. I think are kind of interesting. We could talk a little bit more because there's that, these natural heuristics and biases and so on that we have in terms of seeking explanations for things, causes mm. of things. I think it's, I, I, I still, despite the fact that terror management theory, I think has been debunked, I heard that too, but I still have personally have a lot of sympathy for existential concerns i think it's debunked in some of the stronger claims but maybe the core idea that belief in an afterlife provides 
existential comfort, I think is hard to debunk entirely. And sure. or the notion that people will be punished eventually if they transgress, even if they don't seem to be in real life. Like there's an obvious mm. psychological satisfaction in that idea that, you know, when we look around the world and we see Trump being the president and so on, right? Like that it seems like exploiting and being the worst kind of person is often rewarded in society. But you want that if that were the case, you know, that's not a good message to send the people. Um, so you prefer to have one where there is a universal system of justice that will take care of that, even if the human life doesn't. And even if you suffer tremendously in this life, but you are a good person, you mm. will be so it like in this often is like why religion sometimes gets associated with social conservatism, right? Because it's saying you don't need to worry about your condition so much in this life because, you know, do what you're supposed to do, follow your position in society and be a good whatever you are, and you'll get your reward eventually. You don't need to become a revolutionary, right? But, but mm. on the other hand, religion has also served as a potent stimulus for various revolutionary groups or social justice movements throughout history, right? Often have religious figures at the helm, especially in the, the modern period. So yeah, it's a, it's a rich tapestry. Like uh, it, it is not just the opiate of the masses, though no. it has functioned as such in many yeah. societies. Yeah. I don't think any of those explanations are mutually exclusive. Right? I think no, they're not. Form. Mm. And that, that's, that's a general takeaway is like religion is such a complex phenomenon. I have some sympathy for the people who want to say we shouldn't use the term religion. It's too reductive and it suggests like too much of a cohesive whole. But I, I don't think you need that in order to discuss the topic. You can highlight there are all these different contexts where things perform differently. There are all these different aspects, supernatural beliefs, ritual, psychology, like the branching division of within religious communities and and so on and so forth that you can look at individually as components but like having a broad category and a family resemblance type definition is fine with me and it, it, like it's the same as politics or any of these broad categories where there's lots of individual things you can talk about but the the general category does make sense to examine like if you talk about pre historic politics, it makes sense, right? Even though it's, you're obviously not talking about multi-party democracies yeah. or that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 As long as you, we define our terms and it's fine. You use something snappy like religion, instead of using one of the definitions you pasted into the chat there, a system of beliefs and practice that revolves around commitments to supernatural anthropomorphic beans <laughs> that, that, that's yeah. a bit of a mouthful so yeah These just, are, just, and that's just that's the shortened version <laughs> of yeah. the yellow one so it, yeah. yeah one thing that sometimes gets poo-pooed is not necessary and i think it is important is that like the distinguishing feature because people sometimes say well there's nothing distinguishing you can apply the definition to anything right but but no because to me what distinguishes religion from other areas of life to some extent, right? That it's always intertwined, like we talked about with politics and all that kind of stuff. But there is the supernatural element, mm. the mm. appeal to invisible 
beings or forces that are the driving things. And then the ability to manipulate said forces by the correct beliefs or the right rituals. And that, mm. though, that is not inherent in every other aspect that one might, you know, associate mm. with similar dynamics. So some people say, well, but you know, there are systems of religious belief that, that have no gods. And that is often sort of true. Like the people made that claim about Buddhism, but the word's completely not true because Buddhism has gods, not, not even the Buddha and stuff. Well, what his status in mo and in most Buddhist contexts, he's almost functioning as a God, but even when not presented as that, there is actually a realm of rebirth in traditional Buddhism, which is gods. So the, there are gods in, in Buddhist, but, uh, but there are yeah. other systems which have a better claim, right? Animistic systems and so on. But in those mm. cases, you definitely still have supernatural, uh, things. Things mm. which are invisible, which are, that are not the same as like a, a boar running through the forest. And people sometimes take exception because they say, well, in those societies, they are treated as if they are, you know, physically there and just as real as a boar or an elephant. And, but I, even then, I, I often find those claims unconvincing when you read the literature. It's like people believe they're real, but they, they don't treat them in exactly the same way they would, you know, just a wild animal that needs no. to be mollified or that kind of no, thing. I'd, no, I don't see how that's different from a modern day evangelical saying that Christ is literally here with them and talking to them and him and so on. But, you know, I think I, I agree with you that I think that that supernatural element is a necessary one and one that it distinguishes it from other kinds of belief systems. Because if you look at those theoretical explanations you mentioned before, like you can take those cognitive reasons, which it's like a shortcut to, to explaining why things happen is, is one way to sum of that up. But then again, you know, you can imagine various types of conspiracy theories and other sort of weird, irrational or non-empirical beliefs that would still fit that. And if you could think about the social bonding, you could think about football clubs and stuff like that. There are exactly. stuff that's, that's there's stuff that, but it's those existential concerns around death and the afterlife and meaning that sort of adds the extra, the extra spice that makes, makes religions a bit special. I'm not sure the afterlife component is the key, although it, it definitely is a recurrent feature, but I think understanding QAnon as a political cult makes more sense, right? Because it's, it's primarily focused around these kind of political actors and hidden forces. And they might be like given a level of power, which is supernatural, but they're not presented as Except, you know, so this is the difference between like, say, when you start bringing in religious motifs about blood sucking demons or, or, you know, Alex Jones style Christian ethno-nationalism layered on top of the conspiracy worldview. And there, you can have those overlaps, but I think like kind of what you're suggesting when you're talking about the afterlife things is more that the motifs and the kind of figures and cosmological systems in religion are much more powerful because of the depth of symbolic meaning attached to them yeah. than something invented whole cloth. So even new age cults and what will usually mm. reference Jesus, Buddha, uh, mm. you know, they might even take Muhammad and, and so on, but they'll mix it in with other more modern things. Uh, but, what, but you what, still need those people. 
Well, here's an interesting example of that. I was listening recently to these people with these very strange extraterrestrial beliefs, right? You know, it followed most of the tropes that people would be familiar with. You know, there's all these different alien civilizations and there's good ones and there's bad ones. And there's like, there was this whole elaborate Baroque system that was The being, raptors, the greys, yeah, the that's, spider aliens. That's right, the greys, the spiders. <laughs> and there were these layers of, it was, you know, layers of Baroque craziness. But you could just tell that the way they spoke about it, it had these really strong religious overtones. Like, I think these people were sort of simultaneously quite Christian and religious, as well as totally believing in the alien overlord thing. And I could just tell, I can't articulate it. You, you could probably explain it to me, but it, it felt to me like it, it, it was an overlapping magisteria. You know? Yeah, it, <laughs> it is. Was the same thing. And sometimes directly overlapping because the Elohim from biblical or, I don't know, Abrahamic sources get like brought into that cosmology as actually being aliens <laughs> and then that yeah. they the, the, so you have you know a kind of stargate scenario where the the ancient religions are associated with alien beings and 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 have overlaps there so you have those crossovers but i think the you know you you see it also not just in like cults and ufo believers or so on the interest in a detailed cosmology of different beings and factions and powers attributed to to different individuals within this grand system, right? Cosmologies. That's something humans love, and and mm. they love it in their fiction as just oh, as much as they love it in their dramas, right? People will build the Game of Thrones huge chart of all the relationships, and I think that comes from a combining like social primate love of interest and gossip and in human interaction with a bigger significance, right? And a more it like counterintuitive mm. properties, which make it more interesting because it's the problem of science fiction, uh, a lot of science fiction that you have aliens, which are supposed to be alien and, you know, completely separate evolutionary lines, but the way they're written is fundamentally human. They're, they yeah, have yeah. the petty feuding and they're, you know, they're social primates that look like lizards or jellyfish. So yeah. it's, a, yeah, I yeah. think there's a lot of overlap and, and that it cosmological systems in the pre-modern period. You have to yeah. also understand them in a world where there isn't mass media entertainment yeah, and stuff. Like, that's right, like the Greek pantheon or the Norse pantheon uh, as entertainment, you know. Stories, like, right? Like, Legends and myths. With, with, when there's no Netflix, it's a long evening. You have to fill that time. <laughs> well, it, most of humans were just telling in fields. <laughs> the majority of that. But, but when you come back from your, your backbreaking labor, you, you know, you want to do something. So you got to hear a story. Yeah. yeah. Tell me a story. Yeah. And there well, were look, always I, I, people sorry. in society yeah. who, you know, were good at that. The, yeah. So in some respect, I mean, this might be stretching things a bit far, but like, I think the gurus that we cover in a different time might very well have been the storytellers, uh, mm, the type yeah. who would, you know, be talking about the spirits and so on. Yeah, there's a fine line between high priest and storyteller sometimes. But I, I like the thing that you hit today, which is that like people love the complexity. They, they love the intricate social relationships and the different powers and qualities that are attributed to the different actors and agents in these things. And 
that rang true for me because in you know one of the things I've studied, which is complementary and alternative medicines, and you know one of the interesting questions is why do people like them so much? Because they do like them; they're inherently appealing, and one of the reasons I, I genuinely believe is that most of them are just fascinating. Like they're just they're just intrinsically interesting. Like just to take one example, like this color therapy thing, there's like hundreds of different colors. They all have different qualities. They can combine with each other in different ways. And, you know, homeopathy, energy therapies, you name it, they all have an absolutely fascinating kind of backstory. And, and yeah. for, for those who want to dig deep, it, it, it's for like, if someone is giving you a massage, that's nice, right? If someone's yeah. giving you a massage and telling you that this pressure point is connected mm. to this thing and whatever, and that's why that's sore or whatever, it makes it feel better. It, yeah. it is like, even when you know it's bullshit, having a story attached to it is yeah. really nice. It gives it a, a bigger significance. And it's, it's always something that like when I'm teaching students about, you know, monotheism and polytheism and the different systems that like, when one thing that people don't appreciate so much is like even the monotheistic Abrahamic faiths that are ostensibly about a God, you still have this pantheon of angels and saints and like, mm. and, and beings who, if they're not gods, they don't have creator God status, but they still have a lot of powers there mm -hmm. and they're often battling bad versions who also have powers and stuff. So like in all our contexts, those are demigods or they're feuding gods. And I always liked Buddhism. This is why, you know, the kind of atheistic presentation of Buddhism that is popular in the West is slightly grating because one of the historically recurrent features about Buddhism is that it's been very good at accommodating existing pantheons into its cosmology. So very often when it goes to somewhere, it didn't out, like ban the gods, right? That existed, you know, mm. in the kind of Roman Greek thing, it took them. But I like that specifically in Japan, and there's something to debate as well with the Bon religion there, but because they have these anthropomorphic gods, right? In Japan, the Kami in the Shinto system, and they have shrines dedicated to them. They built this theological justification that the Kami could study Buddhism and become like, you know, protector deities for Buddhism. So they built these temple shrine buildings of where, which were shrines housed within temples where the kami are then, you know, kind of learning Buddhism, becoming protector deities. And it, it's like, a, you know, it's a very physical manifestation of the ability of religions to do that, to like enter an area, provide a theological system that they say is better, and then yeah. to look at your existing gods and say, you know, those are nice and we can, we can do something with them. You know, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. That's, they, it's not a, it's not a tear down, you know, we could, we could renovate this. Yeah. Yeah. And there are all the ways it can go, right. You can go that no, like fundamentalist movements that all that's got to mm. go. That's impure. Yeah. And mm. I, I much prefer the syncretic version, although, you know, people often have presented that as like debasing the religion because it's not. It's not pure, but it's as a modus operandum, it often leads to a lot less burning of heretics. So I'm generally yeah. in favor of it. Yeah, we can all agree about that, I think. So, Chris, I'm conscious of your time. 
I mean, it's that's been... a, yeah. They do. We <laughs> we slightly over our, our intended bite sized chunk, um, but but still, you've been, you've been very generous. You've been very generous with the time. Um, we've helped yeah, you but, up, but no, I mean, I genuinely like I, I love this stuff. So probably if people found stuff interesting in this, they could let us know. And I'm sure you wouldn't wouldn't take much encouragement to follow no. up on any of those threads. So, yeah. so you can ask about if there's any uh, topics. Maybe you know. It, I don't know if people know our research areas that that well, but like that, I I've just explained what I'm interested in, like ritual and uh, religion. So you should now, Matt, before we finish, give people some idea of your areas of research interest, so that if they have a you know a topic that they want to hear about because the the intention like this 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 episode is quite obviously focused on my research but we're not planning to make it always that way we we want to switch roles so we, yeah. what what but, are your uh, in no, a you nutshell Matt, in a very no, no. oh no no, no. no. I, I won't do it now i won't do it now because i'll have my time in the sun oh, okay yeah the we've, next one will be your intro thing me follow-up questions if they wish after that so okay that's okay that's don't fine. worry don't worry it's fine yeah. it's fine i tried to yeah. be you know tongue-tiki equanimous. that's that's it um but yes so you the next time we do this we'll focus on matt's research and then after that we'll go into the hmm the research sphere. Come on, we need the name for it. Like, well, well, actually, the other thing we're going to do, we talked about this before, which I think would be really fun. It would be like a, a little mini journal club because this, you know, occasionally we come across papers that are just that are just interesting and they're just a good, they may not be right or whatever or hugely influential, but they're just interesting and a good springboard to talk about good stuff. So um, I've got a couple of those in my back pocket. So once we've plumbed the depths of, of, of our expertise, which won't take long, I'm sure we can get into, we could get it to yeah, other people and, um, um, that'll be really fun because yeah, I'd like to, yeah, I think we'd like to talk to each other about them and, um, yeah, maybe other people will be interested in hearing. So that'd be great. Yeah. We can maybe, uh, you know, send it to Heller and Brett to show them how to critically review a paper that like it is, is possible how you do that. That's, that's just a dig, Matt. It's just a dig. It's a petty dig, but I mean, they claim to do that and I've never seen them like properly critically review a paper. So we yeah. could actually do that. We could actually, so that's kind of a separate thing in a way, because I, I was just thinking of papers that are sort of fun and interesting to talk about, but there's kind of another thing we could do, which is take a, just take an empirical paper, for instance, and and go through, yeah, you know how, how to how to evaluate it, yeah, critically. Yeah, yeah. and I, I dry, will say it's a bit dry, but no, it, it, it can make it fun. You can make it fun. Just become extreme. That's the worst paper. <laughs> no, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that, it depends on the paper. Like there's been one recently that has got academic psychology Twitter in flame about. I don't know if you saw the. Oh. The feeling cold, uh, uh, women, yeah, with, bo- women wearing, who feel hot, like like a dress, physically you know, going out to a attractive. club, clubbing, physically attractive, don't feel cold. That was or the, feel less cold. Yeah, it, feel less it, cold there's too. more to it, but there's a lot of debate about like the quality of that paper and so on. Maybe maybe we don't want to do that paper, but I just want to mean that there's uh you know you, the, there are like papers which become interesting because for 
various social dynamics on Twitter because they have features on them, which are interesting to talk about. So we could do, you know, controversial papers and whatnot. Yep. Yeah. All good. All good things. Very good. Last well, thing, thank you, Matt. Chris. I enjoyed that. Yeah. Last thing I just was yeah. thinking, self-promotion. Um, I have an article at Eon, which I published a couple of years ago, and it's called Religion Without Belief. It's 3,300 words long. It's a long article, but it's, I think it's a nice condensed thing about my view about the importance of rituals and how people might attribute too much significance to belief. Sam Harris. <coughs> And, <laughs> and so on. So uh, if, if people want to, that's probably a non-academic-y summary of like some of my opinions about religion and ritual. Nice. We'll put a link in the show notes. Very good. All right. So Matt, back to Monday morning work and we will release the Brené Brown episode this week. We promise we'll get to it. Yep. So yep. yeah. He's been busy. I've been sick. But it's going to happen. Yeah. It's gonna happen. All right. Ciao. Ciao.